0: Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 130 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. YOLO. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Yellow. Ooh.
1: <laughs> what does yellow stand for if YOLO stands for you only live once, Dylan?
2: Uh, ye only lives once. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, mm-hmm.
0: i'm into it good job dylan hi everybody it's good to good to talk to you
3: you almost said good to pod with you again and then you didn't yes <laughs> like I, I last th- episode i
0: thought it through and thought that was weird <laughs> <laughs> good good how's everyone's august any big news we're about to go to telluride for the film festival and we're excited but also panicked because of all the packing and prep we have to do how are you guys maggie's
3: first film festival
0: maggie's staying home with her obachan dylan's mom, but Maybe next time Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm.
0: we did. Oh, she did. Dylan and I have been in a competition to see who can come up with the movie that Maggie will sit through. We're showing her. The entire thing. Sunday's the movie day. Every week we switch off who gets to pick.
3: Let me guess. Dylan tried My Neighbor Totoro and you tried Paddington too.
0: How dare you? Yes, absolutely. But Paddington was first. Yes. Right on the money. (laughs) I know my friends. (laughs) We tried Paddington 2. Dylan did My Neighbor Totoro. We did The Lion King. Those were all like, she was kind of into it for like half an hour. And then she made the sign for Paw Patrol. So... (laughs) We had to change it. But last week I got her to sit through the entirety of Charlotte's Web.
2: <gasps> Not in one sitting though. A book adaptation.
0: In two sittings but she did watch it all in one day and it was a book adaptation and I was just thinking about how she would do it at a film festival like watching really obscure movies. Not well. Not well.
3: <laughs> Although at this age isn't like every movie an avant-garde movie? Isn't it just like lights and colors and like <laughs> strange
0: creatures? <laughs> Probably. She was thrilled that there was a pig that talked. Guess who plays Templeton they're at me steve bachette
3: <laughs> andrew massey
0: <laughs> but yeah th- guys there's been a lot of books that we've read on this podcast that are becoming movies right away they just dropped the trailers for white noise my best friend's exorcism there's a trailer out also for blonde toby's favorite oh yeah isn't that
3: rated nc-17
2: it is Ooh. well i think they're Wild. still trying to f- figure out if it can i also didn't know that there was a blonde adaptation before but it was like a made for tv thing Oh. Joyce Kelly Oates needs he said Netflix
1: money.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think we got the golden touch, guys. That's all I'm going to say.
1: I know. we we'll give it a 2 well, ring list bump. Well, well, Toby doesn't have the golden touch this time. <laughs> Blonde. Blonde. That Yeah, that's yesterday's news. What about them dropping Phlebus?
0: But, like, consider oh, yes. consider Flebus.
3: Dylan sent to the article that Amazon has canceled their adaptation of Consider Flebus. So, you know.
2: Maybe they heard
3: about your upcoming review and it's
2: like, we can't risk it.
0: We have to wait to see if he'd keep it on yeah. the shelf. <laughs>
3: Ooh, yeah. We already have Fleabag. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
0: (laughs) Fleabus, Fleabag. Mm. Guys, I have a problem. Yeah, we know. I know. I didn't buy any new books. That's not the shame. The shame I have is, I know, is that um, our to read list challenge as a podcast, we're three books ahead. My personal one, seven books behind. What do I
1: do? I think I'm currently eight books behind. So uh, same boat. I have a bunch of books that I... Like, have queued up, and I finally have about two weeks where I think I'm going to have some reading time. So I'm going to hopefully smash out and at least, uh, you know, not be devastatingly behind and just be, like, crazy behind.
3: <laughs> well... Wow. I'm currently 15 books behind.
0: Whoa. I'd like to give a big
3: I'd like to give a big anti shout out to Critical Role Campaign 2, which uh dominated my life for about 3 months while I listened to the whole thing. Um, You've already through you know,
1: that? yeah I consider myself a nonsense level listener of that and I am not through Campaign 2 yet. Yep. Well, it was worth it and uh and I'm really really behind on my reading
3: goal. I, I this is the a year where I don't know if I can make it back. That's uh that's too far behind, but you know what? Not every year is a, is a winning year.
0: I've feel the same way, but every year has been a winning year, and I don't know if I'm ready for it not to be a winning year. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. I did finish The Goldfinch, which is, I'm glad oh. to finish it, both so I can, you know, say that I totally agree with Andrew's review on the last podcast. I also would have given it four stars, and I also think it dragged around the same spot that Andrew did. I actually texted him because Andrew said last episode that there was a point where he was making the hurry up gesture, and I was like, Andrew, was it this part? He's like, yeah. <laughs>
3: Bailey, do you have any shame this week?
0: I do not. I am shameless. Uh, what about you guys?
1: I'm William H. Macy. Ooh. I'm Emmy Rossum and the guy from The Bear. Also shameless. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan, are you
3: any shame?
2: Wait, are we counting my shame? I've been buying books every day. <laughs>
3: every just, no one's, day.
2: Just, just no one's been asking me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, considering that Toby had a book to read. Toby, uh, did you have a book to read this <laughs> this week?
3: consider this my answer yes i did uh i read uh i read consider flebus by ian m banks yeah yeah so i owe an apology to dylan because i believe when he read the title out for the first time during the choosing he said flebus and i I very confidently with that straight white man confidence said i think it's (laughs) flebus um so (laughs) that's on me dylan i knew it
0: Toby, did you read the yeah. audiobook so you're confident in the pronunciation? I, yeah, I okay.
3: read the audio book. Plus, um, well, I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a second after I give you my gigantic log line. Ooh. Ooh. Um, Take a dash of James Bond, add a pinch of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, then combine with a healthy serving of a dark version of Star Trek. And you might approximate Ian e. M. Banks' Consider Phlebas*, the story of Bora Horza Gobachul, a specialized humanoid assassin with appearance copying capabilities who moves and is moved through the currents of a galactic war.
1: Oh. Oh. So when you say like someone who has like mystique powers? Yes, um, but like slow mystique. Oh, <laughs> like it takes him. He doesn't
3: have like a blue form. That's his normal form. He does have a normal form. but He just looks like a dude. But over the course of like days or weeks, he can assume anyone's appearance, uh, depending on how far that appearance is away from what he's currently looking like.
0: But is it like cool. Ditto in Pokemon that he has a stupid face? Even though he might look like the person. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, I can't comment on how stupid his face is. Banks doesn't give us the stupid level of his face. So, you know, it's up to the reader.
0: Probably pretty stupid. It's talking about me now why Amazon
3: said no to this. (laughs) So uh, the reason we know it is considered Phlebus is because it's actually a reference to T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. So don't we all feel foolish? Mm. This quote is at the beginning of the book. Oh, you who turn the wheel and look to windward. Consider Phlebas, who was once handsome and tall as you.
0: Is Phlebas from Greek myths or something? I don't know that one.
3: He calls him a Phoenician, so I don't. I'm not an expert on this subject matter, but I'll explain a little bit more at the end of my review what I think he's referencing in that quote. I think it's Phoenician. Thank you, Dylan. So I'll give you as much as I can of the rundown of this book. It's a it's a space opera in every uh, sense of the word. It's pretty huge and sprawling. But here we go. There is a huge war galaxy wide between two sides. There's the Idrian Empire and they are a brutal warlike expansionist theocracy. They want to take over the whole universe and subjugate them to their religion. Right. That's one side. The other side is both capitalized the culture, which is a kind of heterogeneous commune of all these different races who have kind of banded together. And they are using artificially intelligent machines to kind of help them live a life of communistic pleasure. They are a post-scarcity society, so they can get everything they need. Nobody has any wants and they all live together. But they are kind of fostering artificial intelligence to the point where they're creating sentient machines that are kind of doing more and more of their thinking for them. Those are the two sides of the war. Now, guess which side our protagonist Bora Horza Gobachul, is on? Which side do you think he's on? The Russian one. Yeah, the bad
1: one. <laughs> wow. You're right. <laughs> to be fair, it was because you were asking it that I was like, I think it's going to be the one we don't expect.
3: Ah, <laughs> oh, I forgot I'm on a podcast with a bunch of nerds. Uh, um, so, yeah, he's on the he's on the theocracy side.
0: I thought he was on the communism. I guess wrong. Oh,
3: you're wrong. I thought
1: he was on the theocracy.
3: Okay, Andrew, you're right. You are the nerd. Uh, Bailey, you're not. You're cool. Uh, He is on the theocracy side. He has a kind of innate hatred of sentient machines and he is kind of serving as their agent. They are not humanoid. They are this huge bizarre race. They're tripodal. They're like 12 feet tall. Their heads are shaped like saddles. They're like truly alien. They're immortal. They never die unless you kill them. And Horza, which is what they call him, is kind of serving them because he is terrified and also hates the culture's use of artificial intelligence. He thinks it's a threat to life in the universe. Horza himself is one of the more interesting aspects of the book. He's what they call a changer. Um, and it's a humanoid race of these people who have the ability to copy other people's uh, appearances. He's also like more durable than a human. He's really hard to kill. He has poison fangs. And he also has poison sacks underneath his fingernails. So if he scratches you, you die.
1: Oh, well, you better so, be careful you know. if you're like walking through a crowded subway or something. Someone mm-hmm. walks past yeah. you.
3: He, he's, you know, the, the changers are used infamously as assassins throughout the universe. And Horza, he's kind of James Bond for these uh, theocratic... Aliens. Gotcha. This is a huge space opera. It's filled with unique creatures. It's filled with huge, gigantic sci-fi set pieces. Think, you know, space stations the size of planets, stuff like that. Um, and there's a simultaneously complicated and very simple plot. Horza is charged by the Idrians, that's a theocracy, with one final mission before they let him retire. He has to get to a planet to find something precious to their enemy, the culture. He has a really hard time getting there, and he makes friends and enemies Along the way,
1: that's the plot.
0: Well, we always know when they say it's just one more mission that yeah. it always is just one more <laughs> mission, no complications. It is,
1: yeah. <laughs> it's very straightforward. It's one more job
2: before I can get out of here. <laughs> well, I hope mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. I hope this evil organization that I work for
3: doesn't come back and hurt me.
0: Certainly not.
3: So I'm going to jump into my elves and orcs, and I'll give you more details on the book that way. First, elf is that this is really ultra committed sci-fi. It's swinging for the fences. It's not ashamed of what it is. Uh, It is so nerdy. I love it. I sink into it. I eat and breathe it. Um, And it's just unapologetic and really fun to see something uh, as far as how bizarre this world is. The culture and the Adrians, the two sides in this war, are both really fleshed out societies. Each of them have admirable things about them and each of them have definite flaws for a pretty long time almost through the entire end of the book even though i may have presented it in a way where you personally think one side is better than the other you are not sure basically which side is correct or even if there is a correct side um i think banks does a really clever thing where you like the protagonist and then you kind of assume he's on the right side but then as the story evolves things get more and more gray um and i think that's really done well I'll talk about Horza as James Bond again. I think he's James Bond, but done really well. He's got that gray morality, ultraviolence. Uh, he even has his own Bond girl. But these things are all done like really well. They're really good versions of these tropes. For example, his Bond girl is a fur-covered martial arts expert. She kind of goes toe-to-toe with him all the time, and she's very much his equal. Chewbacca. <laughs> <laughs> yes. hot to hot, Hotbaka
1: hot Chewbacca baka. is Thank not you. a martial arts expert. <laughs> That's. I think he karate, karate chops someone. Some, they at one point. believe in firearms.
2: <laughs> I'm, um, sorry, I'm
1: sorry. What's your name? <laughs> <laughs>
3: And then I'll say also uh, Banks's descriptions and explanations of his very high sci-fi concepts are both beautiful and comprehensible, which can often not be the case in books like this. You know, often they lapse into things that are totally difficult to understand or they're kind of too artfully described where you're like, okay, enough of this pretty language. What is it actually? And I think he strikes that middle ground really well. And then my last elf is that he writes action extremely well. There's a lot of action in this book and he's a very good action writer.
0: Okay. But what drink does the main character have? And is it shaken or stirred?
3: Oh, you know, that's, he's missing that. He's missing a signature. He's missing a
1: signature drink. Is he allowed to drink if he has poisonous fangs? If he drinks, does that mean that he gets poisons himself? Ask it. What do you think if Andrew, he bites do you think himself this
3: is a that Never can drink
1: in his life where he poisons himself If he accidentally bites his tongue, is it all over for him?
0: I think it's something we should consider <laughs> yeah.
3: I'm gonna go to my orcs then um, except it's only one orc and it's complicated because it's also an elf. So banks is clearly very interested and in, you get this about maybe a third of the way into the book. The whole book is about that there are no winners in war. There is no morally correct side. War makes us all hypocrites and all zealots, no matter how high-minded you might be when you join the war. Right. Neither side is clearly correct. Neither side is particularly likable by the end of the book. And his dedication to this kind of gray morality is really impressive. And intellectually, I really like it. I think it's a cool idea done really well, especially because it kind of slowly comes on. And you really do have that sensation of feeling lost and like you want something to be right but nothing is right. This is not a situation where there are good people and bad people. It's just a bad situation. That is cool. However, this book is really long and there's a lot of action in it. Like a ton of action. I would say like more than 50% of this book is description of action scenes. And when you present all of your characters as completely morally gray, and there's no one to really root for. You don't end up rooting for the main character that much or anybody else. All of a sudden, these action scenes start to fall flat because I don't care who wins. I don't really mind if nobody wins. Like This is a story about the pointlessness of war and conflict. So why are there so many, long, detailed, like really in-depth action scenes, Uh, especially toward the end. The end is like a very long, protracted action scene. And honestly, I kind of found myself yawning through it. I thought about, I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience where you're watching an action movie, maybe late at night, and you haven't been paying that much attention, and you find yourself like looking at the huge final set piece, and you're like struggling to stay awake. Oh, yeah. You know, like all these explosions are happening. Yeah.
0: I know exactly what you mean. And
3: I will say, yeah, toward the end of the book, that was my feeling is it felt like two books smushed together a pretty good, you know, standard uh, space opera action book, and then a very good kind of philosophical, high-minded sci-fi book. But when you mash them together, they don't really produce something that's fun to read, in my opinion. And then my last little orc that is uh, definitely an orc, is that Horza, uh, our main character, he remains obscure. Um, He's a lot like James Bond, again, I'm not going to (laughs) stop, in that you know everything you need to know about James Bond within 30 minutes of a Bond film, right? Like you watch them and he never changes and he never really gives you anything more. He's entertaining to watch. But for a long book, totally centralized on this one character, he just doesn't get any more complicated, even when other characters are trying to get more out of him. So it's a little frustrating toward the end, and it kind of adds to the
1: dissociation you can feel from the action at the end of the book.
0: Mm. So how many stars?
1: But actually, before you say stars, I have a really important question. Mm -hmm. Which James Bond is he most like? Is he a Craig man? Is he a Connery?
3: I have an answer for you. He's a Craig. He's definitely a Craig. He definitely is that kind of um, gritty reboot style where it's like, you know, they're really leaning on the gray morality. It's like, oh, is he a good guy? Oh, just barely. So, yeah. Mm. There you go. He's also got beautiful ice blue eyes and abs that you'd kill for. Ooh. (laughs) Um, Ultimately, I really loved aspects of this book, but it was brought down by the endless empty feeling action. Uh, It pains me. and I think I'm going to give it three stars. I will check out another one, though, because I think he's a great writer. And I think that maybe I know this is in a series. So maybe he kind of manages to mesh these ideas better in a book later down the line.
0: All right. Well, interesting. Andrew, do you have any facts on Mr. Banks?
1: Saving Mr. Banks. (laughs) yes. (laughs) I do. All right. So, are you ready? Are you set? Yay! All right. Ian M. Banks. Ian Banks was born in Dunfermline, Fife, Scotland on February 16th, 1954. His mother was a professional ice skater, and his father was in the Navy.
3: Both of them interacting with water.
1: Yes, in different forms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and his sister worked with gases. No, just kidding. Um <laughs> He moved around a bit with his father's work, but stayed primarily in Scotland. His first introduction to science fiction came from Reginald Alec Martin's Kemblo and The Zones of Silence, which ignited such a love of the genre in him that he started writing his own stories. Mm. He wrote his first novel at age 16. It was not published, but it was called The Hungarian Lift Jet. Mm. And he went on to study English philosophy and psychology at the University of Stirling, where he would continue writing and complete a second novel in his first year. Also it was not published.
2: Good to know that he's always had a, a little bit of trouble naming novels. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Some of his other titles are pretty solid. After school, uh, he intentionally took jobs that allowed him long stretches of time off. He was an OG freelancer, uh, so he could focus uh-huh. on writing. So he would like do a contract working for IBM for a few months, and then he'd have all- time to write and things like that. Cool. He published his first novel, uh, which is called The Wasp Factory, which was released under the name Ian Banks. Now, The Wasp Factory is a sort of literary novel, and he published a lot of literary novels and a lot of science fiction. And you may have remembered that we specifically called him Ian M. Banks, so far it referred to him as being born as Ian Banks. Well, this is fascinating information and it's what you came here for because his literary <laughs> novels are published under the name Ian Banks and his science fiction novels are co- published under the name Ian M. Banks.
3: Is, the, is there any confirmation that when he did uh, conferences as Ian M. Banks, he wore that pair of glasses with like the fake nose and the mustache on it and <laughs> spoke in a different voice?
1: I hope so. He had um, a beard. So I'm assuming that whenever he was Ian Banks, he just shaved his beard. Got it, got it but yeah uh, so the M you may wonder where that's coming from his dad wanted Hmm. to give him the middle name Menzies uh, like Tobias Menzies um, (laughs) but messed up somehow unclear so his <laughs> official legal name was just ian banks but he was he was like well your middle name's menzies <laughs> even though he technically didn't have that he considered it his middle name and he added the m to his science fiction novels because it's what he wanted to be known as but when he first got his first publishing gig with the literary stuff his publisher thought it was too stuffy sounding so that's why there's a distinction between the two
2: so his dad is also bad at naming things <laughs>
1: <laughs> you would think it would
3: be reverse like you would think you'd want the stuffy name for the literary novels and the more loose name
1: for the science fiction i think when he got his first publishing deal they didn't know he was gonna like be a science fiction star like that came a few years later because mm-hmm. he started literary and then and then moved to flebustown
3: man i bet his agent just felt like a total fool he's like what we wasted ian banks <laughs> You and Ian M. Banks are the same person?
0: That's the funny thing is it's <laughs> it's not that different. Like, you know, Victoria Schwab yeah. and V.E. Schwab, that's the same person, but like young adult versus adult. But that's different enough. Wait, what? <laughs> versus Ian just M.
1: <laughs> enough that it like makes you think for a second. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Wasp Factory, his first novel, uh, came out in 1984, and it ignited his career right away. He has one of those careers that sort of once he got his first thing published, it sort of just continued forward, um, unyielding. It ignited his career, and boy, he did not look back. He published Walking on Glass in 1985, the year later, The Bridge in 1986, <laughs> the year after, Espadere Street in 1987. 1987 was Jeez. also the year M. Banks came to town and published Considered Phlebas, so he came came out with two books that year (laughs) Um, and published 27 books in total. One was posthumous, but he had still it wasn't one that like needed completion. He did finish it before he passed away. Between 1984 and 2013, when he passed away, that's 27 novels.
0: Wow. Yikes. Freelancers work hard.
3: Yeah. You know, that that year where this came out with the with another book, as I said, this is not a short nor a simple book. I cannot imagine writing this whole book and another one in the same year. That's crazy. Yeah. Well
2: yeah. That's why I had to split it between Ian M. Banks and Ian Banks.
3: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm. I will say in this book, there is a character who has control over his brain, so he never sleeps. A third of the time, the left side of his brain is awake and his right side is asleep. A third of the time, that situation is reversed. And a third of the time, both sides are awake. So, you know, maybe Ian M. Banks is telling himself a little bit. Yeah, like Cocaine. Fight Club. Cocaine. Cocaine. <laughs> That's what cocaine does to you, right? Yeah.
1: His work was well-received, and many adaptations across all kinds of forms, like radio, television, film, and stage, have been made of his work. He also uh, was one of those authors who wasn't shy of the limelight. Um, like he worked on projects with musicians and theater makers that uh, about his own work, including he wrote music and performed like as versions of himself in things. Was it like Ian N. Banks? <laughs> Ian O. Banks? <laughs> Ian P. Banks.
0: M. Ian Banks?
1: No, like, the yeah, the plays were like called like The Curse of Ian Banks and he appeared in, him, in them at like the Edinburgh Fringe. <laughs> oh, OK. Yeah. He was outspoken about issues of politics, take an intake of breath and worry about which side he was on. Don't worry. He <laughs> took a position left of center, <laughs> um, <laughs> which you might be However, able to tell. Ian Banks. <laughs> Ian Banks, total fascist. Now, um, no, uh, as evidence in his actions, when England it was involved in the invasion of Iraq in 2003, he supported an effort to impeach Tony Blair and even cut up his passport and mailed it to 10 Downing Street, though he said he wished he could have been more radical. He has a quote that was like, I consider driving my Land Rover through the docks of this thing, but then I saw armed guards. So he uh, did not... <laughs> (laughs) Hold
0: back. Wow.
1: He was married to his first wife, Annie, for 15 years before they separated in 2007. He then married Adele Hartley, uh, but I'll talk about that more in a second. He had an avid car collection, though after a near fatal accident and his growing concerns about the environmental impact of fossil fuels, he sold his large collection in 2007 um, and reduced his flying to only emergencies. In 2013, he was diagnosed with terminal and inoperable gallbladder cancer, and that's when he married Adele Hartley, asking her to, quote, do me the honor of becoming my widow. Um, Ooh. Wow. Yeah. He accelerated the production of his final novel, which was called The Quarry, and he passed away two months after his diagnosis on June 9th, 2013. Wow. Had a wide ranging influence and even has a asteroid named after him. And more recently, several vehicles in the SpaceX fleet are named for references in his books. Anywho, that's <laughs> Ian M. Banks or Ian Banks, depending on what mustache he has on. <laughs> Sweet.
0: I love it. Excellent research. And that's consider fleebus by Ian Banks, three stars. Three stars.
1: Bailey, yes. speaking of elaborate mustaches, different costumes and garish appearances, did you have an imaginary mm-hmm. friend growing up or did you just read a book about one? Ooh.
0: I did not have an imaginary friend growing up, but I did read a book about one. I read Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chbosky. Mm. This author, he's most known for writing Perks of Being a Wallflower like, what, 20 years ago? Oh, okay. Which I enjoyed. um, But this is obviously very different genre-wise. Perks of Being a Wallflower is, you know... a trade paperback about like a grounded high school coming of age sort of thing with quotes like I feel infinite and we accept the love we think we deserve that kind of thing versus this which is a straight out horror novel epic novel in the meantime he was a screenwriter and director um so it's not It's not that he, you know, just sat around writing this book for 20 years. But it is just interesting that his second book is so different from the first. Mm. This book, Imaginary Friend, follows a boy named Christopher who is seven, very young.
2: Is he real?
3: Mm.
0: (sighs) No spoilers. No. (laughs) Christopher is the protagonist. He moves with his mother. um, Is she real? Mm, Guys, guys, I'm not going to spoil who's real and who's not real. Okay. Keep going. Okay. 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 He moves with his <laughs> Come on, mo- Dylan. He moves yeah. with his mother to a small town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they're trying to escape the mother's abusive ex-boyfriend, who is real.
1: Okay. Is Pittsburgh real? <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So, you'll never guess whether or not this person is, you know, real or embodies a physical body. So, Christopher moves to this town, and at, when he gets there, he starts to notice that there's one cloud with a face in it that keeps staring at him. The cloud doesn't move. And it keeps looking at him. And Christopher's like, can you wink your right eye if you're looking at me? And the cloud winks his right eye.
1: Yeah. Is the cloud real? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I like this, Bailey. This is scary.
0: That's how it starts. He finds this cloud and he follows this cloud to this creepy area of woods in the town. And yeah. and this is all this is all the opening. This is not spoiler. He sort of gets lost, gets scared, ends up inside an old mine. And isn't seen for six days, but but then comes back after six days with an imaginary friend. So that is the premise.
1: Hmm. I, is imaginary friend wow. real? we talk a lot of, about a lot of books being creepy or horror. This is one of the first times you've described mm-hmm. one of them. And I've been like, I don't like this. I don't know if I want to read this. Yeah, me too.
0: And you might also find this unsettling. Like he comes back with this imaginary friend, but he has this intense drive to go back to the woods and complete a treehouse. I wonder what could happen. I wonder what the treehouse is for. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's the opening. That's the premise. I'm all the way in. I like creepy stuff, it is unsettling. And I I don't know if I can even articulate why, but it's like the ordinary, a sort of sudden twist on it, like the being gone for six days where you're like, well, what happened then? And it just makes you question everything, like the real life horrors that people are going through or the day to day struggles versus the supernatural struggles. Mm -hmm. So I was all in on that. I will say that the book is 700 pages. So.
1: Oh, (laughs) boy.
0: with very small font. OK, so I'm going to move into my orcs and elves. So I really loved the opening. The first 100, 200 pages, I was on board. I was reading it. Dylan kept walking in, and, and I was still reading the book. And he'd be like, how is it? And I would just say, scary. No. Um, and I was like, this is scary. Like, it's just creepy imagery. Stephen Chbosky has this great sense of like, "Ooh, that's a creepy idea. That's a creepy picture. So I was into it. My, at first, my only critique is that the font was too small. I was having a hard time yeah. getting through it because I really had to squint my eyes. Um, Stephen Chbosky plays a bit with format. Like For example, when Christopher's gone for six days, it's like you turn the page and the only word on the page is he, and then you turn again, was, turn the page, not. Seen again for six days. Do you know what I mean?
2: It's done. on I me mean, now why this mm. is 700 pages.
0: <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and it's made up of a lot of short chapters, which I know Andrew loves. And it switches perspectives with a lot of the people in the town. And so you get a sense of how this one creepy event has affected the entire town and could affect the entire world. And, you know, there's just these, these creepy villains like, quote, the hissing lady. Creepy. Just like the description of the hissing lady, I'm like, nope, 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 nope. Or like the <laughs> the drive to complete this treehouse. Needing to complete it so much that he doesn't want to sleep. He just has to finish the treehouse. And you're like, why? This is all great. This brings me in. However.
3: Yeah, at this at this point, <laughs> it sounds amazing.
0: Exactly. And at first I was like, Toby's going to love this. Because it feels mm-hmm. really reminiscent of Stephen King, like the epic Stephen King books, like it or the stand. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Toby would really like this. Then we get to the second part of the book. It just kept going. It was long <laughs> and long and long and repetitive. And we had a lot of similar action sequences. One example is that the deer are evil and the deer are following people and like <laughs> crashing into their cars, which is creepy. But when you hear it like a hundred times, you're like, I get it. And part of the <laughs> horror is like being sort of stuck in time loops. But that's horrifying, but hard to read over and over. And over again. Um, Mm. And like I got to 200 pages from the end and I was at what I thought was the climax. And I was like, there's still 200 more pages. It feels like he was trying to make this sense of a ticking clock. Like we have to finish this. We have to do this by Christmas Day. But it didn't there was no reason for that. It was like trying to manufacture some tension there. Mm. And the biggest issue for me was the more the author explained what was going on, the more that you figured out the mystery, the less satisfying it was. Because there are Ugh. answers, and you you feel a drive to want to know the answers. Like, I'm sure even telling you the premise, you're curious. But then I did not find the payoff satisfying. In fact, I thought it was cutesy and disappointing.
2: The-
0: so Ooh. it was it was a wild ride. At first, I was like, this is a definite five star. And by the end, I was like, uh-oh, down to four. And by the very end, it was a three. So oh, yeah, it, it it's disappointing because people have described the book as having like the horror of Stephen King with the emotional beats of Perks of Being a Wallflower. And I can understand the combination there. And I see it at the same time, like some of the emotional beats, it's not really what you want rehashed when you're in the middle of a very tense action Mm -hmm. sequence. So I had the sense of, let's hurry up, let's get this done. There's some twists that I did see coming that were pretty obvious. Um, There are other twists that just felt forced to have a twist. So ultimately it felt like he had had a great concept, didn't know where, where to go with it, just kept writing and writing, and then finished at 700 pages with a three star for me. That does sound like Stephen King. Burn! <laughs> Whoa! Yeah. And, and by the end, Toby, it did feel like not just an homage to Stephen King, but like derivative of Stephen King. Like, it's like...
3: Yeah. Once you started saying things like, yeah, and then we started bouncing around in the heads of the various people in the village, I was like, okay, we're seeing our Stephen King on our sleeve here.
0: Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I don't want to turn off anybody that is interested. Do too late but yeah for me three stars and i think i'm gonna put it right in the little free library after we're done recording i'm feeling very strongly Ah. disappointed by the book
3: you know bailey considering our reviews maybe we should call this episode consider three Bus.
0: Anyway
1: Andrew. anyway, Andrew, you got any facts? <laughs> Boy, howdy do I. Alright, Stephen Chbosky was born in freaking Pittsburgh on January 25th, mm. 1970. Ooh. His mother worked as an accountant and his father was a steel company executive and CFO coach, which was not a job I was aware of, even though I interact with CFOs more than I would care to admit. He grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh and cites Salinger, Fitzgerald, and Tennessee Williams as his early influences. He left Pittsburgh to attend USC's screenwriting program and count Stuart Stern, the screenwriter of Rebel Without a Cause, as a mentor and friend who steered his early development. Cool. He self-produced a film, The Four Corners of Nowhere, which he wrote, directed, and starred in. It was accepted into Sundance and got him his first agent. Uh, It was also one of the first things shown Hmm. on the new Sundance TV station. Hmm. While he was primarily a screenwriter, he also worked on novels. In uh, 1994, Chbosky was writing, and this is a quote, on a very different type of book than The Perks of Being a Wallflower when he wrote the line, I guess that's just one of the perks of being a wallflower. Chbosky recalled that he wrote (laughs) that line and stopped and realized that somewhere in that sentence was the kid I was really trying to find. I Love it. The Perks of Being Wallflower, which he worked on uh, periodically after that, was published in 1999 by something I didn't know existed, uh, called MTV Books. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Music, television, book television. Uh, (laughs) And gained a following immediately. Exponentially growing in popularity. Aside from being incredibly successful, it's a book that's commonly banned by schools. So read it, even if your school tries to ban it, Pejos. That must mean it's good.
3: (laughs) Uh, Guys, who do you think a V would be for
1: MTV books. Joyce Carol Oates, <laughs> always
0: Joyce <laughs> Carol Oates. <Lutz. laughs> Susan Orlean. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: actually, Susan Orlean's a really good call.
3: <laughs> it's still, uh, it's still Carson Daly, but he's just wearing glasses. <laughs> yeah, guys, that's why we
1: call our show TRL.
0: Ah, to this.
1: We've got a new hit from Cormac McCarthy.
0: I, I'm picturing, you know, like in, in TRL, when you yelled like, Carson, can I come up? There's somebody with his, their book outside being like, can I be on the podcast, please?
1: <laughs> oh, man. Everyone like breaks down a window because Sally Rooney's showing up at Times Square. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's a fun fantasy. Moving right along. <laughs> if only books were that loved. He is <laughs> he is still primarily involved in film and television. Um, and hence the thing that Bailey called out where even though he published Perks of Being Wallflower, which was really successful and he didn't publish his next novel until 2019 so 20 year layoff, he was very much still working on a lot of different projects at that point. In the meantime some of those projects were, maybe you've heard of them, or maybe you haven't, but he was attached to an initial attempt to adapt The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, but it oh, fell apart ooh. so luckily he wasn't involved in the ill-fated one that caused all the controversy when Sienna Miller insulted Pittsburgh uh, <laughs> he wrote the screenplay for the adaptation of Rent, the musical, No Day But Today, and co-created the CBS drama Jericho, which you may remember as the TV show that was canceled twice.
2: That was like one of the first shows that was brought back by its deranged fan base.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Like the fan base petitioned successfully for them to bring it back for a second season, and then they canceled it after the second season. But it continued on in graphic novel form. He wrote and directed the adaptation of Perks of Being a Wallflower um, and seems to have become good friends with Emma Watson during this time because he also rewrote the adaptation screenplay for Beauty and the Beast that came out in Mm -hmm. 2017 and, Bailey told me, credits her with coming up with the ending of Imaginary Friend, which I guess is not a good thing.
0: Yeah, I was reading the acknowledgements, which were the first page, guys. They were not at the end. I didn't read them before I read the book. But the last thing was I would like to thank Emma Watson, who came up with the ending. And I was like, what? And I read an article about it, and it said that he was pitching her the book and explaining the story, and she was really into it. And then he said the ending, and she was like, huh? He's like, you don't like it? And she's like, no. And he was like, she's really smart. And she had ideas. And mm-hmm. I guess uh, she saved it. So thanks, Hermione.
1: He also directed the adaptation of Dear Evan Hansen, which came out last year, where the wigs looked normal. And so that's uh, Stephen
0: Chbosky. Awesome. Well, thank nice. you. That is Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chbosky. Three stars.
1: All right.
3: Three Star Central. Mm -hmm. Um, You you know what I did with my imaginary friend when I was a kid?
1: Played a bunch of games. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Well, that was one of the games. Uh, Andrew, do you have a game for us? I
1: do. I do have a game for us. It's a simple game this time. Nothing crazy.
3: How many Teenage Mutant Ninja
1: Turtles are I there? I think I've, <laughs> I specifically created this game so you would not bring the Ninja Turtles into this one.
0: <laughs> just try to stop me, Andrew. I'm going to bring TMNT in here.
1: Let me just say if you do that, mm-hmm. you are guaranteed to get every question wrong because the name of the game this week is Consider Game Time. Ooh.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the way this is going to work is it should be a hyper quick game where I'm going to say Consider Blank. And it is an element, uh, a character, something from a famous work of literature, either a story or a novel. And you have to yell out the answer of what it is. For example, if I said, consider Nottingham, you might say, Robin Hood. Mm. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Whoever says the first answer correctly, based on me being able to hear it, I uh, will get the point. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. If I said consider Nottingham, answer, consider Robin Hood. Sound good? Yes. Got it. All right. First things first. I'm the realist. And the first question is consider phonies.
0: Um, consider uh, Catcher in the Rye.
1: I heard Bailey correctly complete the format first. So that is a point for Bailey. <laughs> oh. Congratulations. Consider Ishmael.
0: Consider. G- mm.
1: Oh, Toby coming at her with a boom. Well done. <laughs> we are tied at one, two, one. Consider Dust Bowls.
0: Consider Grapes, Consider of, Grapes
1: of, Wrath. of Wrath. Bailey, you just beat Toby to the punch there. You're up two to one. Oh, Jode. This one's a little harder. Consider putting seashells in your hair.
0: Consider The Little Mermaid.
1: No. It's a book we read on Any this podcast. seashells in your... Uh. Oh, oh my God. I I can
3: see I can see like consider Piranesi. Yes, Toby.
0: Well oh, done, Piranesi. Piranesi.
1: This is competitive. Two to two right now. I love it. Ooh. This one I think is also is also a little hard, but you'll probably get there. Consider buying the flowers yourself.
0: Consider Mrs. Dalloway.
1: Well done, Bailey. Mm-hmm. The Wolf Pack. <laughs> so I'm in a very broey mood today. <laughs>
0: Um,
1: <laughs> Andrew's got a tall can by his yeah, side Yeah, I'm right just now. crushing some BLs BL limes <laughs> And recording the podcast about books Consider matadors
0: Consider the sun also rises Ooh, Bailey
1: oh, Ooh, good Two one. in a row, putting two together there Bailey has four, Toby has two Bailey can win with one more correct answer
2: Yeah, Toby, consider playing better Ooh,
1: <laughs> harsh, Damn harsh, harsh, going. harsh Alright <laughs>
0: I'm sorry,
1: Toby. Be... <laughs> consider hairpins.
0: <laughs> um. Consider Gift of the Magi.
1: Bailey has taken it all. Yes, The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Bailey has gotten there for fun. Let's do the last two, though, to see the final score.
0: Yeah. yeah. Consider
1: Ignorance and Want.
0: Consider The Christmas Carol. Bailey's A Christmas just carol.
1: walking away, and I, I reserved oh, this no. one because I fe- fe- felt like Bailey was definitely going to get it the second I said the first word, but consider Sewer Systems.
0: Consider Les
1: was wrap. No. Oh, no. So well, what happened there, Toby, is you came out of the blocks firing, and uh, then Bailey just kneecapped you <laughs> and continued running around the track. Yep.
0: If we watch the game tape, we can just see that I'm better.
1: Wow. Oh, wow. I'm really taking it this episode, guys. <laughs> no. I'm so
3: glad I have my 30 rack of keystone light to keep me company here. And your imaginary friend.
0: Uh, well, I'm chilling yeah. with Carson Daly. Carson McCullers Daly. <laughs>
1: Ooh, <laughs> nice. Um, but yes, thank you for playing. That was considered Game Time. I hope you had fun, even though we broke Toby's spirit at the end there.
0: I had a great time. <sighs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Andrew. That was a great game. Dylan, now it's your turn to shine. It's your time to come out of the sewer system and pick books at random from our shelves to read next. They could be real or imaginary. It's time for The choosing.
1: The choosening. Choosening. Can I just request that they're not imaginary (laughs) exactly right yeah please don't give
2: me
3: an imaginary book
2: Well, I mean, Toby, I would have given you easier book, but the problem is you never filled out the RSVP, so I don't know if you have a plus one, and like if you're going to be eating the steak or the chicken mm. or a vegetarian option, because you're number 25, The Member of the Wedding by Carson McCullers. Whoa. Carson Daly!
0: Oh. Oh, oh,
3: that's... Talking of called shots there, Bale. <laughs> <laughs> I am really amped for this one. I've read and really enjoyed The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, and I think this one is actually supposed to be even more famous, even more successful so Ooh. i'm amped i really really am looking forward to this
0: Ooh, dylan i'll read an imaginary book
2: mm. well to choose or not to choose that Uh-oh. is the question huh? <sighs>
3: mm-hmm. whether
2: it's better to suffer the slings and arrows of really long books or by picking one end it you have number 38 hamnet by Maggie
1: O'Farrell.
0: Okay. okay. Okay.
1: I was like, um, I think Bailey's read Hamlet, Dylan.
0: <laughs> I have read Hamlet, but not ham <laughs> uh, yes. The, I was worried it was going to be a long book, but this is a short one, so that's good.
3: Yeah. I've read this one, Bailey. It's I liked it. I'm excited to see what you think. Does it have to do with Hamlet? I just kind of assumed off of the thing. My,
0: I thought, it not it like, doesn't Shakespeare have a son named Hamnit? Is that what it's about? Tommy? Yeah,
3: this is no spoiler. It's the back of the book summary. Um, it's a kind of imagining of real events in Shakespeare's life. He had a son named Hamnet who died young.
0: Oh, OK. I'm excited. I'm excited to read it. And I hope that our reviews match up. So in two weeks on the podcast, Andrew has My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris. Mm. And I have Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell.
2: It's going to be a good episode.
0: Thanks for listening to The To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at The To Read List Podcast.
1: And if you want to help us find new listeners, one of the best ways to do that is to rate and review on your podcatcher of choice, preferably Apple iTunes. But we love seeing the reviews. We love seeing the five-star ratings. We love building treehouses in the woods. We love never sleeping so that we can <laughs> finish building treehouses in the woods. And we love shape-shifting. So if you love those things, five stars, please.
3: And if you're an incredibly deadly agent in the middle of a galactic war or just, you know, a normal person on Earth, please tell a friend about this episode. Our best advertisement is word of mouth. Uh, if you know someone in your life who loves books and is not part of a theocracy trying to take over the universe, tell them about our podcast.
0: If you have an imaginary friend that likes to go into people's minds, maybe that would be a good person. No, to
3: Bailey, tell. this is my part. You don't <laughs> get to add to it.
0: <laughs> Thanks to Toby and Andrew. For for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading.
1: Books, 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 books. books, books. books. Fleebus.